Let's, uh, let's pray together. Uh, God, you never leave us. But there are times that it's difficult for us to remember you and to acknowledge your greatness and to live in your love. So God, I, pr- I pray that you would stir up our affections today. Stir up the memory of you. Help us to set aside every distraction and every other thought that hinders us from hearing from you and your word. Call our hearts back to you through the hearing of your word and set our hearts on fire and remind us of the sweetness and the loveliness and the goodness of the gospel and and the indestructible, unchanging joy that comes from knowing Jesus. It's in your most precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. Today's text is in Luke chapter 1, and if you read a little farther back in the text, right before the Song of Mary, we see this scenario where the angel of the Lord has appeared to Mary. Now, angels are typically really powerful and fearsome creatures, and not those uh, cherubic, uh, chubby cupids that we see on Valentine's Day cards and on Tom and Jerry cartoons, and certainly not effeminate figures like we see in a lot of artwork. Uh, In fact, when people encounter angels in the Bible, they generally have one of two responses. Uh, One, they fall down on their knees to worship and beg for mercy. Or two, they fall out and faint like they're dead. Uh, In Luke one thirty, the angel appears to Mary for the first time. And the first words he says to her is this. Do not be afraid, Mary. Uh, Elie Wiesel once wrote, If an angel appears to you and says, Do not be afraid, then it is most definitely time to be afraid. Uh, uh, Angels are often messengers, so if you need an angel, he's probably going to give you some extraordinary news or an assignment that will likely throw your life completely off balance and possibly turn the whole world upside down. Uh, Mary responds to the angel's announcement, this news that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah in an unusual way. In the midst of her fear, she begins to sing. And she sings this remarkable, beautiful song that's been known for 2,000 years as the Magnificat. And this word Magnificat uh, means to magnify or to praise. So Mary's response to the angel's message was to worship. Uh, It's a powerful song. I've uh, read that Mary's worship, I've read it described as the gospel before the gospel. Uh, A shout of triumph 30 weeks before Bethlehem, 30 weeks before Calvary and Easter, 30 years before Calvary and Easter. So here's our goal for today. We're we're rapidly approaching Christmas. And what I hope to do is sort of reorient our thinking by breaking this song that Mary sang down word by word and line by line and maybe changing the way we think about God and ourselves so that we'll be people with more joy and more hope and a fresh perspective uh, on the ancient truth about who God is and what He's done for us. Uh, We're going to start at the beginning in, in verses 46 and 47 of Luke chapter 1. Mary teaches us here about what Matt Chandler calls the calls something he calls the godness of God. She identifies God as who he is, an awesome God and a merciful savior. She starts in verse verse 46 and says, and Mary said, 
My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. When Mary identifies God as her Savior, she's making a statement that she knows she is a sinner. Because the only people who need a Savior are people who have something to be saved from. Uh, We don't just need a little shot of God in the morning to make us feel better or more energized. We got coffee for that. Uh, We don't need an Oprah God to help us have better self-esteem or an Elon Musk God to help us succeed in business or a political God to make us feel righteous like we're on the right side of things and everybody else is wrong. To use the word Savior is a radical statement that implies that we're all helplessly, hopelessly lost unless God in His mercy takes some initiating action to save us. Uh, This is a really personal statement that Mary is making. Uh, She was from a Jewish home, and the Jews were God's chosen people. So she could have easily thought, we're good Jews. We follow all the rules about what we eat and who we associate with. And we go to temple and attend church on the appropriate holidays. And we have a good family name. That's all I need to get in good with God. But Mary doesn't take that route. She's acknowledging that it's not enough to think you're in good with God just because you attend mama's and grandma's church on Christmas and Easter. Or even to be a good person in the eyes of the world. Mary understands that no matter what good she does or what bad she avoids, according to Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All we can do is trust that God is a merciful God. That He is a God that doesn't give you the punishment that you deserve for your sins. And that He is a God of grace. When we can't pay the price for our sins on our own, He gives us a way out. And for us, our way out is the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. Taking the punishment for all of our sins so that we don't have to fear God's judgment anymore. But instead, we can enjoy God forever. Verse 48 Mary saying, For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. When Mary says that God has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, what she's doing is putting our own view of ourselves in proper perspective to the reality of God, the godness of God. Uh, uh, God is her Lord, the King of her life, and God is her Savior, her only source of redemption from her sins. Uh, now she's shifting gears and she begins talking about the frailty of humanity, the, the humanness of humans. We're of a lowly state. Mary is demonstrating humility. And humility means that we have a big view of God and a smaller view of ourselves. She's talking about the godness of God in contrast to the humanity of humans. And she's doing it with language that demonstrates humility. Humility 
is, is not moping or pouting or having an attitude of self-negativity. Instead, it's a glad recognition that God is wiser than our best wisdom. He's more capable than our greatest abilities. He's more powerful than our greatest strengths. He's more forgiven, forgiving than our worst sins. And he's more loving than we could ever imagine. It's a positive affirmation that even though we are flawed and needy, we have a God who is bigger than us and he's able to supply where we fall short. This is a countercultural way of thinking. We live in a world where we want to be first. We want to be top of the heap, king of the mountain, and at least appear to have it all together. We want attention. Uh, and it's not just confined to Instagram and getting followers and likes on social media. But we begin as young as when we're toddlers, when our kids start telling us, watch me, daddy, watch me, daddy. And then they do something that, I mean, they just like walk down the stairs and, and they expect us to applaud, right? That's us. We want the world to applaud us, to recognize us. On Saturday Night Live, Kristen Wiig used to play a character named Penelope. And she was really socially awkward who was starving for attention. And she was always trying to one-up people. And she had a lot of pride and she wanted to appear to be the best. And if you were having a normal conversation with her, uh, you could say, uh, I like the Atlanta Braves. And she would say, uh, I know all the Atlanta Braves personally, actually. And you could say, uh, I had a good salad for lunch. And she would say, I have a salad bar in my car. And if you said something positive about your children, my kids made a good grade this week. She would say something like, I have six children who spoke 44 languages before they were born. It's a picture of us. It's exaggerated, but we all want attention. We all want to be on top. We all want to be first. Because according to the great theologian Ricky Bobby, second place is first loser, right? That went right over some of your heads. Brennan Manning wrote this. He wrote, Jesus comes not for the super spiritual, but for the wobbly and the weak need who don't know, who don't have it all together and who are not too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Jesus was the perfect model for humility. He was not the Messiah that the Jewish establishment had expected. They had a fixed idea of what their Savior would look like. He would be a political figure, a dominant superman who would put Israel's enemies in their place through his power. And they got the opposite. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Jesus stoops to conquer. He wins by losing. He becomes small to make us great. He gives us eternal life by dying on a cross. Tim Keller wrote, 2,000 years ago, there was a little stable that contained something bigger than anything in the world. And that any heart, the simplest, the filthiest, the feeblest, 
can also have in it something bigger than the world. Something that really satisfies. And part of this thing that every human heart can hold is meekness, humility. What Mary called a lowly state. This means understanding where we fall short and where God doesn't fall short. And then to live in the confidence of that knowledge. He is able. I am not. He knows. I don't know. When Mary is talking about a lowly state, about humility, she is recognizing that God is more holy than we will ever be, more powerful than we will ever be, more wise than we will ever be, more forgiving than we will ever be, and more glorious and great than we could ever be, and the source of the greatest joy a human being could ever possibly know. In the light of Christ, our inadequacies are fully exposed so that God's greatness can be revealed. Uh, the, the humanness of human beings is exposed so the godness of God can come to the forefront. Uh, I'm going to tell you, getting the applause of men will satisfy you for a second. But when Jesus came to the earth, he brought with him what John Piper called the dawning of an indestructible joy that no one can ever steal from you. So even in her self-defined lowly state, Mary had joy knowing uh, this God that no one could take from her. Verse 50, And His mercy is on those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Mary goes on and sings, His mercy is on those who fear him. And when Mary says this, she doesn't mean God extends mercy to those who are afraid of God and who believes and who believe that if they uh, if he catches them sinning, he's going to throw lightning bolts at them and give them cancer and flat tires. Mary is saying that God will extend mercy to those who aren't afraid to admit that they need mercy. If you look at the text, it says he scatters the proud. He pulls down the mighty from their thrones. But for the lowly, the humble, the sinners who aren't afraid to admit that they're sinners, who aren't afraid to admit that they need a Savior, uh, uh, who aren't afraid to admit that they can't save themselves, the ones that have a healthy respect for God, He exalts them. One of my favorite things about the Bible is that God consistently chooses people that no one else would ever choose and uses them to magnify His goodness and His great greatness. In 1 Samuel 16, God sends a prophet named Samuel to the house of Jesse and tells him to have a look at Jesse's son and choose one of them to be king. So Samuel checks them all out one by one. And one by one, it's no, no, not this one, no. And finally, Samuel says, do you have any more sons? And Jesse has an afterthought. He had almost forgotten about him. And he remembers, yeah, there's one more, but it's David. Uh, he's out in the field watching sheep. He's kind of small. He's got a bad complexion. He's left-handed. So you probably won't want him. 
Probably not. But here's the guy that we know is the greatest king in the history of Israel. But to his own dad, his own flesh and blood, he's an afterthought. And what does God do? He exalts the lowly. He tells Samuel, that's the one. That's the next king. But it gets better. Moses, God says, I need someone to lead the entire nation of Israel out of slavery and take them on a 40-year journey through the desert and make them into the people I want them to be. So God chooses a natural leader, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Kim Kardashian, right? Uh, No, he chooses Moses. Uh, An 80-year-old convicted murderer with a speech impediment who had spent most of his life running from the law. Over and over again, God plays this scenario out in the Bible. Even with Mary. Pop culture would look at this scenario today and say, Wait wait a minute, Mary? Mary's going to be the one? Uh, the, The one who got pregnant at 14 or 15? The one that uh, married Joseph the carpenter? Uh, the one from that ghetto called Nazareth? Why, why would God not pick somebody with a little more influence? Uh, nobody's going to line up and take selfies with Mary. God is sabotaging his own story. But God knew better. And he chose an obscure, unknown teenager, an insignificant little girl who was part of a culture that was defeated and ruled by a foreign power, a nobody named Mary, to be the mother of the Savior of the world. God did not use, uh, choose Kanye West or LeBron James or even the Canna Queen of Colbert, Georgia. He didn't choose anybody with name recognition that could promote his brand. He didn't choose a mother who was a millionaire. God chose a 14, 15-year-old girl from a third world country with dark skin and dark brown eyes and dark brown hair to be the mother of Jesus. Some translations of the Bible use the word handmaiden to describe Mary, uh, but the original language in the Greek uses the word doulos to describe her. It means a slave or a servant. So Mary was nothing but a teenage servant girl. And God used her to do something that would change all of history, all of eternity. In God's economy, there are no big shots and no nobodies. Every foster child, every ex-con, every elderly grandmother, every NBA star, every millionaire mogul are all on equal footing. All of the social grades disappear in God's economy. God doesn't just pick what we consider to be first in line or cream of the crop. He chooses the weak and the wounded and the broken to show his power off, to show us the godness of God. Mary goes on and she sings in verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. This, uh, this makes me think of Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount where he said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I read a while back in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that Georgia is one of the fattest states in the United States now, and they've jumped tremendously in the rankings over the last couple of years. Uh, we have, for the last several months, been fixated on the Georgia Bulldogs and their ranking in the college football polls Because even if we weren't number one and we had dropped to number four, 
uh, we wouldn't have to sweat it. I want you to understand that because we're number three in terms of obesity. Uh, 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 go biscuits. I mean, that's, that's us. We really don't have any context for hunger and thirst in our world. The closest we come is complaining that Chick-fil-A isn't open on Sunday or if we have to wait in line for 20 minutes at the Cracker Barrel. The, the type of hunger that Jesus is talking about and that Mary is talking about isn't the kind we satisfy by running through a drive through And the type of thirst Jesus is talking about isn't the kind we have when we're picking up our morning coffee at Starbucks. It's the hunger of a man that's starving to death and the thirst of a man who will die unless he finds something to drink. Jesus is talking about people who are starving to be something different from what they are and thirsty to be close to God. The deepest longing inside of our souls is a longing for righteousness, a longing for a right relationship with God. Uh, There's an interesting thing about this scripture. Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who are righteous. And that's generally how we judge people as to whether they're Christian or not, by whether or not they follow the rules or appear to follow the rules, by whether they have a good reputation as a moral person and they keep their picture out of the bad and busted. That's how we determine whether somebody is good or righteous. Those are the folks that we feel are in good with God. But Jesus laid out a different standard. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. People who want it, but understand they don't have it without Jesus. Jesus is saying, I didn't take on flesh and die for people who were self-righteous religious snobs who looked down their noses at sinners and say, thank God I am not like them. He said in Matthew 9, 12 and 13, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, But the sick, Jesus fills those who are hungry for righteousness. But those who are prideful about their state are sent away empty. Jesus didn't come just for those who occasionally skip Sunday school. He came for real sinners, for thieves and murderers and addicts and terrorists, for people who got caught up in poor choices, for real sinners like you. And real sinners like me. I'm going to jump back just a minute. And we're going to close with this. And look at verse 46. The first verse we looked at again. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Mary understood the power of worship. And our goal as individual believers and as a corporate body, the church should be what her goal was, to magnify God. David wrote in Psalm 6930, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. The longing of his heart was to worship God. He wrote in Psalm 84, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh Sing for joy to the living God. In the New Testament, Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
So Mary's magnifying of the Lord isn't just about singing. When she gave her yes to the angel that visited her, she made her entire life available to be used for one purpose and one purpose alone, to magnify God, to show creation the godness of God. And likewise, everything we do, whether it's singing songs in church or serving in ministry to others or being a mom or a dad or a friend or a a, a politician or a truck driver, all of it should magnify God. Everything we do is a spiritual act of worship. Our work, our play, our mundane day-to-day lives, even our sickness and our suffering, all these things are offerings to God. Paul wrote in Philippians 1.20, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So whether we're living or dying, whether we're playing sports or having dinner with our friends, whether we're out in public or doing something in secret, God should receive glory and be magnified in everything we do. We should rejoice in who God is and what he's done for us. Magnifying God isn't about making God look bigger than he really is. It's about showing a true picture of the godness of God. You don't have to do huge things to magnify God. You just do small things with huge love. The greatest spiritual act of worship that Mary ever performed in life was carrying and giving birth to and nurturing a baby. The most profound and eloquent sermon she ever preached was being a mom. In worshiping her God with her day-to-day living, Mary magnified him. And she took incredible joy in it so the world could see how big he really is. John Piper wrote, The whole duty of the Christian can be summed up in this. Feel, think, and act in a way that will make God look as great as he really is. I love music. Every once in a while, Don and I'll have a phone call, and we might not talk about much, but we'll talk about music every once in a while and songs that we like. I I love the Allman Brothers and Otis Redding, and I love all kinds of music. But the song of my soul is about the unchanging, unwavering, ineffable love of Jesus the love that pursues me when I run away, that embraces me when every fiber of my intellect rejects it, that cares for me when I could care less. The love that a teenage girl gave birth to in a barn, laid in a feed trough, nursed, got up with him at night when he cried, brushed off his skin knees and held his hand when he crossed the street, She nurtured that love and she watched it grow into not just a good man, but the God man. 
And she wept tears that only a mom can understand as she watched him be beaten and mocked and spat upon and have a spear thrust into his side. She took the love of her life and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and later on she wrapped him in funeral linens. And the son that was promised by angels, the one that she once laid in a manger, she laid down dead in a cold borrowed tomb. But three days later, the godness of God was magnified. And he laid death in its own grave forever. So it's time for us to stop overthinking, stop overanalyzing, stop being so enamored with what the world has to offer. Quit worrying so much about our schedules and whether or not the Christian life might overextend us or challenge us or make us change some part of our lives we don't want to change. It's time for us to repent of our sins and say yes to the godness of God. It all started with a yes. It became a song. And it grew in that teenage girl's belly and made itself manifest in a stable. And it poured itself out on the cross and changed everything with the empty tomb. Advent is about waiting for the celebration of Christ's birth. But it's also about longing for His return. And when He does, Scripture is plain. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And everyone, every Baptist, every Presbyterian, Every poet, every priest, every plumber, saints and sinners alike will be so awed and overwhelmed by the presence of our King Jesus, by the presence of the godness of God, they will all worship like Mary did. Piper wrote this, he wrote, wrote, all of history is moving toward one great goal, the white hot worship of God and His Son, Among all the peoples of the earth, the humanity of humans will be fully exposed and the godness of God will be fully revealed. A 14-year-old girl sang a worship song and it changed eternity. And one day when Christ returns, we'll worship and, and we'll all sing together. And I'm going to tell you, if you don't start singing first, Tim McDonald, you better wait. Because I'm going to bust out and it's going to be, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And wonder how he could love me. A sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful and my.
shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Every other religion in the world has at its core men in their mess figuring out how to get to God. Only Christianity has God stepping down into the mess and pulling up men to him. Jared Wilson wrote, Jesus was born in a filthy barn and he grew up in a dirty world and got baptized in a muddy river. He put his hands on the oozing wounds of lepers. He let whores brush his hair and soldiers pull it out. He went to dinner with dirt bags, both religious and irreligious. His closest friends were a collection of crude fishermen and cultural traders. He felt the spit of the Pharisees on his face and the metal hooks of the jailer's whip and the flesh of his back. He got sweaty and dirty and bloody, and he took all of the sin and mess of the world onto himself, onto the cross on which he was nailed naked. And in his work and in his words, Jesus is making promises to the beaten, the torn, the broken, the depressed, the desperate, the poor, the orphaned, the abandoned, the cheated, the betrayed, the accused, and the left behind. He is promising to fix it all. <clears throat>